Uh, we'll now hear today's scripture reading, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. All right, today God speaks to us from Acts 19, 23 through 41. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines uh, of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from his business. And you see and hear how this fellow has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that God's gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the, of, of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Articus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to return into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Uh, some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a, def a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here. Though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are protocols, pro-councils. They, they can press charges if there is anything further you want to bring up. It must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged and rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion. Since there is no reason for it, after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. So the Bible, uh, in some sense, is a complex book that is intricate uh, and at times may be difficult to understand. And even though in some cases that's true, the Bible is also, at the same time, incredibly simple and easy to understand. Because though there are uh, multiple storylines to consider throughout the Bible, there is ultimately a single narrative arc from Genesis to Revelation. That arc being what we call creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Essentially, the story of the Bible is that God creates a good creation. We, as his creation, fall away from his intended purposes and plans. But God redeems us. 
And in the end, will completely restore that which was lost to his people. Now, in that narrative arc, that overarching arc, there is one consistent through line that constantly shapes our understanding of the story, our understanding of God and our relationship to him. And that constant through line is idolatry. In many ways, we cannot understand the Christian story, the gospel, without understanding how idolatry factors into that story. You know, one of the the great pictures, I think, of uh, this great battle that's happening between idols and the great God, Yahweh, is in 1 Kings 18. If you know the story, it's the story of the prophet Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. And Elijah, in essence, you should go back and read it if you don't know the story. It's, it's one of my favorites. He comes up against 450 prophets of Baal who try to prove that their God is greater than Elijah's God. And the way that they uh, accomplish this challenge is to call on their gods and see who rains down fire on an offering that's presented. Now, the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, they begin to pray, they begin to chant, they even begin to cut themselves with swords and spears, trying to get their God's attention. But in the end, the true God, Yahweh, is the one who shows up and shows his power by raining down fire. But in the midst of that battle, going back and forth with these prophets, Elijah says something that strikes, I think, at the heart of idolatry. And really is a question, it's a proposition that is before all of us today. He says to the people, he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. That's essentially where we are today. The narrative arc of the Bible leads us to that proposition. Who will we follow? The Lord or another god, Baal, an idol. Today, as we continue our series, uh, Extraordinary Through the Ordinary, which has been our look at the book of Acts, we're going to consider idolatry and whether or not God, the God of the Bible, is the true God, or if there are other gods that we should consider. And we're going to do that by looking at how the Bible describes and talks about idolatry through these three categories. We're going to take a look at the, the allure of idols, the resistance from idols, and the cost of idols. Okay? So the allure, the resistance, and the cost. The allure. Uh, we got to first understand what's happening in our passage to get a sense of this. Uh, chapter 19 uh, is chronicling uh, all that's been happening in the church, through the church, in Ephesus. Paul has been preaching there and there have uh, essentially been a revival that's taking place within the city. People are becoming Christians left and right. And this was significant because Ephesus was kind of the center for the worship of the Greek god Artemis. And given that the city's identity was rooted in their worship of the Greek pantheon, all these conversions were really problematic for some in the city. In verse 24, we see one person who was upset about all these conversions taking place, a man named Demetrius. He's livid, and he's upset because he and other silversmiths, they make idols for a living. And so the message that Paul is proclaiming is undermining their business. And what is that message? Well, if you look at verse 26, 
uh, Demetrius actually gives us his understanding of what Paul has been preaching. And this is what uh, Demetrius says. He says, and you see here with this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people in Ephesus and in, in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, I find that interesting that that's what Demetrius is understanding about Paul's message. Because essentially what you have here is you have this pagan idol maker proclaiming the Judeo-Christian assertion of uh, what's called the, the Shema or Deuteronomy 6, that there is one true God, singular God. Jeremiah 10 says that Yahweh is that only God. I mean, he's essentially here speaking the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments, that there is no other God before Yahweh, and that there should be no engraven image on heaven or on earth that we should bow, to, bow down to. And that said, as you can imagine, a growing number of people beginning to come to faith in Jesus and starting to reject all of these other idols, yeah, it's going to start to put a real damper on your business when your business is selling idols. Now, given that that's the reality, we do need to consider the, uh, the implications of, of idols. Because what I think we have a tendency to do when we think about idols is we do have a tendency to disassociate from the notion of idolatry. Given the way that the scriptures describe idols like Baal and Artemis, often these idols that we see throughout scripture, they're some kind of engraven image. There's something physical, there's something tangible. And so because we don't have these idols that we bow down to in the same way, we tend to disassociate from idolatry, as though idolatry was something that they once did, but now, because we're modern people, we're not superstitious like they are, uh, they were just ignorant, we're not ignorant, and so we don't have the same kind of problem with idolatry. However, to fall into that is actually very small-minded thinking in relation to idolatry, because idolatry runs far deeper than any physical thing that we might bow before, physically bow before. Because to assume that idolatry is about an actual engraven image like an idol is to miss the essence of idolatry. It's, miss, it's to miss what God is actually most concerned about when he calls us to not bow down. I mean, is God really upset? Does God really get upset about statues and icons that are crafted by skilled craftsmen? You know, or is God really upset that maybe something that's created could possess power that would rival his power? Of course not. Rather, God is concerned not so much about the actual image created. His concern is the hope and the trust that people put into created things, into idols, instead of him as the creator. He is concerned about his attributes being attributed to created things as though they could possess his attributes. One of, the, uh, one of the perfect examples of this is another one of the central storylines of um, the arc of the uh, overall biblical narrative. And that's particularly God's exodus, God's people exiting from Egypt. That's one of the ways in which God has, over the course of many years, generations, showed the depths of idolatry and their implications. Uh, if you don't know the story, God leads his people who are in bondage in Egypt out of bondage. When he does that, he, after setting them free, he gives them his law, part of that law being the Ten Commandments. 
But after he has led them out, they fall into idolatry. Of course, the famous story of the golden calf. In essence, here's here's what's happened in that storyline. God has rescued his people with a mighty hand from slavery. Once he frees them, he gives them his law. And in that law, you can read, again, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And when he gives them that law, one of the things that's interesting to me is before he states the law, he reminds them of the salvation that they've already experienced, that he's rescued them. And now that he's rescued them, now that they have salvation, he calls them to now obey him. And the reason why that was significant is because he was never calling them to obey in order that they might experience salvation. Rather, the salvation came first. And because of his goodness to them, he now desires for them to obey him and trust him because he's proven himself trustworthy. So that's the overall storyline. But when things got hard the people turned away from trusting the proven goodness of God and instead they craft a golden calf. Again, which you can read about in Exodus 32. Hoping and trusting that this golden calf was going to bring them to the promised land. Now, of course, this angered God. But again, to the previous question, is God angered by the construction of a golden calf? I would say no. I'd actually say that his anger was the motivation for this construction. Because the people had a real heart issue. And you can see that heart issue in Exodus 32, uh, verse 4. This is what, this is, what uh, is stated. So after the calf has been created, it says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what you have is you have all these people looking to the golden calf, acknowledging that golden calf having been their salvation out of Egypt. They are looking to the calf and saying, this God rescued us, not Yahweh. And God's anger in this moment is not so much at the calf, but their willingness to attribute their salvation to and to put their hope in something else other than him, especially after he'd already proven his commitment to them. The reason why I draw this out is because that's the essence of idols, That's the problem with idolatry because it's trusting something else will provide what only God can provide. And in this sense, idols are not some archaic relic of the past. Rather, idols are very present in our lives right now, every day. And there are many different ways that our idolatry plays out. But let me give you a a bit of a framework that I think might be helpful in trying to assess some of our our idols. Because there's so many different ways that we put our trust in other things except God. But let me help you maybe walk through that. Uh, there's a, a man, maybe some of you have heard, Tim Keller, who I'm going to shamelessly reference right now. I don't know if that kind of thing is allowed, but I'm going to own it and just roll with it. He's written extensively on uh, idols. And in particular, you can read um, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, if you want to read something on him. Um, but there's also a man named David Paulson, who's a prolific writer and a brilliant counselor, was actually one of my wife's counselors, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, counseling professors, and he's also a close, uh, close friend with Tim. He wrote an article I, uh, called Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, another really great article I'd highly recommend. Uh, but in essence, in a lot of their writing, they identify four core idols out of which all other idols are born. So let me give you those four and see which ones maybe resonate with you. Okay? One, the first one that they... Uh, present is that there's an idolatry of power. 
An idolatry of power essentially is a longing for influence or recognition. Another idol, another core idol that they note is an idol of control. That idol has this longing to have everything go according to plan, according to my plan. Another idol is an idol of comfort, which is in essence a longing for pleasure. And then the fourth one that they give is an idol of approval, which is a longing to be accepted and desired. And they essentially argue that all other idols kind of flow through these core idols. And these, again, core idols, they manifest themselves in a variety of different ways. I mean, if you have an idol of power, inevitably that idol is going to make you cold and self-serving and self-protecting and vicious and greedy and obsessed with making sure that you feel superior to others. And that can, of course, manifest in a variety of different ways. If your idol is one of control, it will make you manipulative or overbearing or consciously anxious or worried about the future. Again, it can manifest in many ways. An idol of comfort or pleasure will make you reckless and selfish and constantly seeking a a new rush or a new pleasure or a new experience. Again, that can manifest in a variety of ways. An idol of approval will make you uh, never able to be real and authentic and genuine because you're constantly just trying to get other people to accept you and love you and want to be near you. You'll never be able, it often makes you a coward because you're never able to confront real problems out of fear of rocking the boat. I mean, it's interesting. All of these core idols can really manifest themselves in many different ways. And the golden calf is a great example, right? So in a pursuit of power, these people had a, certainly one idol issue was a pursuit of power because they wanted to say, look what we created. We were able to create this great thing that was going to lead us to salvation. There was an idol of control. They did not need to trust in Yahweh. Rather, they could trust in their own fate by creating for themselves a God. There was a, a God of comfort, a, an idol of comfort, the God of this is our creation that will lead us to the pleasures of the promised land. I mean, over and over again, as we think about idolatry, you can almost always bring them back to these four things. And what's interesting, I think that many of us, as even as I've read through some of those, maybe one of them in particular uh, kind of clicks for you, like that's my core one. But I think if we're honest, we probably can recognize all of them in our lives. And in the end, idolatry is really anything that we trust to provide us what only God can give. And in this sense, you and I are all idolaters. This is not some ancient problem. It is a problem in the now. And so God calls us to consider where in our lives are we trusting in things more than him? Where in our lives are we seeking pleasures and hopes outside of him? Now, if you've been around uh, us for a while, you know that This kind of approach and understanding of idolatry is something that we normally address. We address this kind of thing pretty regularly. And it's something we need to constantly be asking God to reveal to us. But I want us to keep that in mind. And I want to shift now to the second point, which is the resistance that we'll get from idols. And the reason why I want to shift here is because as we begin to recognize these idols in our life, it's really important that we recognize they're not going to just go away. And they're not going to die easy just because we have been made, uh, we've been confronted with them. In fact, they're going to resist 
being torn down in our lives. Let me consider that from our passage. So when Demetrius gives his speech about the degradation of the uh, Ephesian idols, the people went into an absolute frenzy. The people essentially began to riot over the reality that their idols were being marginalized in their city. Things got so bad that the city clerk had to come out and get involved. He basically told them, you all need to calm down and chill, because if you don't, the authorities are going to come in, usher in martial law to quell this uprising, calm down. Things had just gotten completely out of hand. Now, it's interesting to me that Luke, the author of Acts, took time to tell us about the riot. If you, if you go back and read through that passage, which I won't do now, the entire narrative has really nothing to do with Paul or even any Christians. It's this whole side dialogue happening between the pagan people of uh, the Ephesians. So why would Luke take all that time to describe what's happening in this offshoot reality? Especially when you consider, given that time, it wasn't like writing a narrative today. You know, today we can be frivolous with details and character developments because we've got the space to do it often in our stories. But in this time, for Luke, every word, every story had to matter. And so this has to matter considering this overarching idea of idolatry. So what is Luke trying to get at? Well, one of the reasons why I think Luke takes the time to tell us about this, idol, or this, this riot, rather, is it's a way of showing us what happens when idols are confronted. When idols are confronted, there will be hell to pay because idols do not die easy. In fact, idols will gladly take down anyone and everyone before going down quietly. Now, given everything that we've already said about idols, we know that idols are really nothing more than the projection of our hopes and our dreams and our sense of validation and worth. So when idols are confronted, we are being confronted. And as a result, we will resist tearing down the idols in our life. This is why Luke takes the time. It's a warning of what will happen if we do not address the idolatry and what's going to happen when those idols begin to be confronted. So when we consider where we might have idols in our lives, knowing and addressing them, it's important to know, is going to be really hard. It's going to be really painful. Because often we've grown incredibly accustomed to those idols being in our life. And not only do we get accustomed with those idols being there, we also begin to justify that idol. And I think more so I'm talking to Christians here who have continually had particular idols in their lives. When they're confronted, you will discover, I think, how easy it is to justify keeping that idol there while also attempting to serve God. Because we really don't want them to be gone. And we figure out ways to even sound noble in keeping our idols. Like, just give you an example of what I mean. Right? So we, we already consider these core idols, right? Power, control, comfort, approval. You know, if you have a core idol of power, it's really easy to convince ourselves, you know, I'm just a person of conviction, and I have necessary ideas that just need to be known by all people. Or if you have a power of, or if you have a, an idol of control, it's really easy to convince ourselves, you know, I'm just careful. I just want to be wise. I just want to know and do what's best. 
You know, if we have an idol of comforts, it's really easy to convince ourselves, you know, I'm just trying to live my best life now, to experience the greatest amount of happiness that can be experienced. If our core idol is that of approval, we can just say, I just, I want to be liked. I want to be approved of. And that's not wrong to be liked by other people. There's ways that we can justify it or even make it sound noble when in reality, they're crushing our souls. And if we try to address them, it will require us no longer identifying with them. And that can be a scary proposition to have to change how we identify who we are, what we value, and what we trust in. We convince ourselves that these idols are harmless, and yet when we resist them, we very quickly begin to realize how incredibly detrimental they have been to us. All right, let me, let me give you some examples of what I mean by that. Think about the different ways, the different things in life that can become idols, right? Not just these big categories of power, control, comfort. I'm talking about specific things that can become idols in our lives. For example, if you want to see someone with an, an idol of money, completely derail, take away their money, and see how prevalent that idolatry is in their lives. If you want to see someone who has an idol of family, change the course of the vision that they have for their family. If you want to see someone with an idol of political or cultural power, if you want to see them completely derail, remove that power. If you want to see someone with an idol of sex completely derail, state God's intention and desire for sex. If you want to see someone with an idol of intelligence or knowledge, if you want to see them derail, see what happens when they're made to feel stupid. If you want to see someone with an idol of moral perfection, let their worst sins be made public. Whatever it is, if threatened, it will undo us because we've wrapped up so much of our identity, who we are, and as a result, it will resist and resist violently because some of you would rather keep the idol and let it crush you than to experience what it is like to not have that idol in your life. And the reason being is because we've put all of our hope and faith and trust in these idols, we can't see not only the destruction that they're causing us, but we also cannot see something far more beautiful and glorious beyond that idol. You know, the only way that we're going to ever be able to actually crush our idols is to realize our substitution for something far greater, which is why we need to consider the cost of idolatry. You know, the irony of idolatry is that it's created beings creating images of created things in order that we might put our hopes and trusts in, in that creation, as though those things were the creator themselves. And the irony is just this odd cyclical thing that we tend to fall into. It's an attempt to marginalize or reject the creator himself. This is why back in Exodus, the Exodus narrative with the golden calf, because they have attempted to cut him out the very one who had provided them everything. And in Exodus 32.10, God says, it, God, the words are, God's uh, anger burned against his people and that he desired to destroy them. 
This is how intense God's anger was toward them. This is the reaction that God has to idolatry, both their idolatry and ours today. Now, I realize that this whole idea of God burning with anger and God wanting to destroy his people, um, for some people, just it can turn you off, I know, because that just sounds like maybe what you're used to hearing about God, that he's like this vindictive, wrathful God. But I don't want you to, to, to dismiss that anger so easily. We need to consider why God gets so angry at the idolatry. The reason being is because of the way the Bavar again Scripture compares uh, idolatry to spiritual adultery, essentially. And there's one book in particular that I think gives a really great picture of that spiritual adultery, the book of Hosea. Now, if you know the book of Hosea, essentially the story is that the prophet Hosea is called to marry a woman named Gomer. By all accounts, Gomer would not have been someone that the world would have thought much of. But out of his love, he takes her in. He loves her, and he is deeply, deeply faithful to her, toward Gomer. She ends up pursuing other men multiple times. Now, you can imagine in that kind of scenario, anger would actually be a right response, would it not? Would not this righteous anger well up in someone because covenant promises had been made between the two of them? She rejected them and now ran off with other men. But given his love for her, this anger that he's experiencing is not going to be one of malice or it's not going to be destructive. It's not going to be vindictive, but rather it's a righteous anger that's directed at the destructive behavior because it undermines the fidelity of their covenant promises and it ultimately is an anger rooted in a desire to restore, not destroy. And so in the book of Hosea, Hosea is continually pursuing her, calling her back to himself. He does not forsake her. He does not leave her in the pit of misery that ends up, she ends up in caused by her adultery, the consequences of her, idol, or her adultery. But in chapter 3, this whole story, God makes clear the point of Hosea's plight of reaching out to his uh, wayward wife. And this is what God says to Hosea calls Hosea to do. He says, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they return to other gods. Now, why? Why is it that God calls Hosea to keep his covenant promises to Gomer as a result of her being this unfaithful wife? Why? Does he pursue her? It's because God himself pursues his unfaithful people because he's made promises to her. The entire story is a picture of God's love for his people. And to go back to the story of uh, the golden calf, in Exodus 32, verse, verses thir- in verse 13, we see the covenant promises that keep God from destroying his people. Yes, he was angry, but he was also a God who made promises. And this is what it says. It says, God will remember his servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, who, uh, to whom he swore by himself that he will make their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and he will give your descendants all this land, I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then verse 14 goes on and to say that the Lord relented 
and he did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. What is happening there? God did not destroy them because he'd made promises to them, covenant promises, promises that would be fulfilled through the line of Abraham. It's a fulfillment that would ultimately be seen in the person of Jesus. You know, I said earlier that when we think about the anger of God, that he has, this anger that he has toward um, idolatry, toward an unfaithful people, that some might scoff at this archaic idea of this um, powerful God who's going to bring wrath. But I also realize that there might be some, as I'm talking about this, maybe you even cower in fear at the idea that God is angry with the idolatry that is currently in our lives. But here's the thing. When you look at Jesus, both of those reactions are completely undermined. Because Jesus comes, and on the cross, he takes up upon himself the wrath of God. The destruction that ought to come as a result of idolatry, he takes upon himself. And just as Hosea, the faithful one who was rejected but went to rescue his, uh, his adulterous bride because of the promises that he made to her. Jesus, the faithful one, comes to rescue his adulterous bride, his people, because of promises that he has made to them. And though at the cross he suffers death, in his resurrection he crushes the power and the allure of the golden calves that are in our lives. And make no mistake, we all have them. And he proves himself far greater, more beautiful, more powerful, more sufficient than any idol. And so if you're here, and maybe you scoff at the idea of God's anger against idolatry, then I would say, I think you may be blind to the severity of the idolatry that required Jesus to come. And I would say, look upon Jesus to see how necessary it was for him to come to crush our idols. If you're here, maybe you cower in fear over your failings and your idolatry. I would encourage you to consider that maybe you don't know the depths of love experienced that can be experienced through Jesus. For Christ has accomplished much so that we might look at him with hope and joy, not fear. Now, I don't know what your idols might be. We all have them. But know that they are spiritual bondage. And they're bondage that's so severe that it required Jesus, the Son of God, to come and crush them. That idolatry is spiritual adultery. Adultery is so unfaithful that it required Jesus, the Son of God, to come and restore that broken relationship. So may we take seriously our idols. And only you and the Spirit of God can really make uh, clear what those idols are. Ask him to do that, to lead you to see them that we might again be restored and renewed in the knowledge of what Demetrius said, that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. But rather, may we look upon the true and living God in his goodness seen in the person of Jesus, that we might see him more beautiful than whatever it is that we might be putting our trust in now. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy toward us, even though we are so undeserving. Lord, there are ways that daily we walk away from your goodness. 
We forget what you have accomplished for us, and we put our hope and our faith and our trust in other things. But God, you are out of your love pursuing us, even though we have gone astray. And so, Lord, would you remind us that there are no gods made by human hands are gods at all, but rather only you are the true and living God. May you help us see you as more beautiful, more sufficient than anything we might otherwise put our hope in. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.